So I've been asked to speak on salvage therapy of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, and the first time I gave this talk was about four years ago or so in the wake of the H1N1 pandemic, uh, where we had seen some of the worst ARDS cases that we had seen in years, and people were going to the shelf and uh, dusting off some of the salvage therapies that had been used for years and trying them uh, to manage these cases. And several reports in the wake of H1N1 uh, pandemic uh, were reported in the literature. The first being from the Australian, New Zealand uh, investigators, the antipodal winter in the southern hemisphere being six months ahead of uh, the, the uh, flu season in the northern hemisphere. They had experience with using ECMO to salvage their severe uh, ARDS cases and reported better than expected mortality compared to historical controls of 21% and calculated that they used ECMO at a rate of 2.6 per million population. Uh, given the billions of uh, people who live in the northern hemisphere, this would extrapolate to over 10,000 uh, ECMO circuits being required uh, if we used ECMO at the same rate when, when winter hit in the Northern Hemisphere, that's even more than we do annually at University of Maryland. <laughs> there were some other investigators that also reported better than expected uh, mortality compared to historical controls uh, using ECMO and other modalities, which I'll go through. You know, it's always fraught with danger using historical controls because the standard of care changes over the years. But all these modalities have one thing in common, it's to augment uh, gas exchange, oxygenation, and ventilation, while trying to preserve the lungs from further injuries. So the first thing I want to go through is what is the standard of care? And, and what do we do for all patients, not just severe ARDS patients, but all hypoxemic respiratory failure patients, and why? And why are we so concerned about sparing the lungs further injury? And this goes back to the seminal work by Webb and Tierney that's now 40 years old, uh, where they ventilated normal rats, uh, the control group at peak airway pressures, uh, 14 with no PEEP added, uh, and an experimental arm that was ventilated at peak airway pressures of 45 uh, and no PEEP. And the rats were sacrificed and their lungs examined on gross and uh, microscopic. And uh, as you can see, their lung in the rat that was ventilated at high peak airway pressures. And 40 years ago, 45 was not a record. I mean, I remember when I was in training when we believed the lungs were stiff and needed added pressure, that it wasn't unusual in some patients to be using uh, peak airway pressures of 60 and 70 and putting in prophylactic chest tubes because pneumothoraces were inevitable. So, um, um, Ventilating these rats with peak airway pressures of 45 uh, and no PEEP, after a while the lungs became edematous, twice as large as the control group, um, hemorrhagic, you start leaking water, leaking protein, and then leaking red blood cells, and an appearance that looks more like liver than like lung. In fact, the, the term for this is hepatized lung. And these were normal rats to begin with. The only injury they had was from mechanical ventilation and if you look at the histology, it looks just like diffuse alveolar damage. It looks just like ARDS. Now, interestingly, there was a third group 
that was ventilated at peak airway pressures of 45, but 10 of PEEP uh, was added. So the, patient, so the lungs weren't allowed to completely deflate. And the lungs are a little bit more edematous than the control group, but they look closer to normal than they do the hepatized lung. And the question is, is this a result of the reduced driving pressure in between them? Because if one inflates to a peak of 45, but only deflates to a peak of 10, uh, the inflation pressure is only a net of 35, so it's essentially reducing the tidal volume. So is it the reduction in tidal volume that spared the, the, the lung injury or the addition of PEEP to prevent atelectasis or a combination of both? Interestingly, and then the other question that comes up is, is this a function of the pressure or a function of the volume? So in a later experiment, Dreyfus repeated this, but he strapped the chest and abdomen of the rats so that at peak airway pressures of 45, the lungs were not allowed to inflate, and they looked just like the normal lungs, like the control lungs. Uh, and he used a negative pressure device like a cuirass and inflated them to a high tidal volume, but under negative airway pressure. And the lungs that were inflated to a high peak tidal volume uh, had the same amount of lung injury as the ones that were uh, inflated to high pressures, uh, but were not strapped. So this is a volume phenomenon, and he also found a protective effect of people, though whether it's the reduction in tidal volume or the uh, prevention of atelectasis is unclear. But this led to the approach that we did in the first uh, ARDS network study of using uh, reduced tidal volume, 6 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight. We dose on predicted body weight because uh, in obese and edematous patients, their lung capacity is not increased. So this is a weight based on height um, uh, versus a traditional tidal volume of 12 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight, uh, predicted body weight being about 20% less than the actual body weight. And over 800 patients were enrolled before the uh, study was stopped for really for efficacy. And uh, mortality was reduced from 39.8% to 31%, a relative 22% reduction, a huge treatment effect, number needed to treat being 11 to 12 patients uh, to save one life, and also shorten the duration of uh, the ICU uh, length of stay as well. So some might ask, well, who cares about uh, twiddling the dials on the ventilator because patients die of multi-organ system failure, and the truth is if you injure the lungs, you get systemic inflammation as well. And the reduction in inflammatory cytokines was greater over the first three days in the 6 mL per kilo uh, tidal volume arm than in the 12 mL per kilo tidal volume arm. It's not just about the plateau pressure. If you read the editorial that accompanied this, it's basically encouraged folks to turn the uh, tidal volume down until the plateau pressure was below 32. Some say 30, others may say 35 but that there's some safe threshold of plateau pressure that corresponds to uh, the pressure needed to inflate the lungs to total lung capacity, above which the lungs are definitely, there are alveoli that are definitely being overstretched um, and below which it's supposedly safe. Well, in this analysis by Dave Hager, where he looked at different quartiles of uh, plateau pressure, the Patients randomized to the 6 mL per kilo tidal volume arm 
uh, always had improved mortality compared to the 12 mL per kilo tidal volume arm, including the lowest quartile of plateau pressure, where the plateau pressure started out below 30 in both arms of the study. So it appears that, at least from analyzing our data, that there really is no safe plateau pressure under which you can ignore tidal volume, that low tidal volume is, is better in all these subgroups. Now, is it just a treatment strategy for patients with established ARDS, or could there be preventative effects to a low tidal volume? This is a study by Agi Gaiach's group where they looked at patients who did not already meet the definition of ARDS and looked at the, the tertiles of uh, tidal volumes greater than 12, uh, tidal volumes 9 to 12 by predicted body weight, and tidal volumes less than 9, and the lower the tidal volume, the less these patients who did not already have ARDS progressed to developing ARDS. So the, or better said, the higher the tidal volume, the greater the risk of progressing to developing ARDS if you didn't already have it. So this suggests that low tidal volume may actually be uh, a preventative strategy. This has not been prospectively validated. So I can't tell you what to do in your unit, in my unit, where we don't have a lot of elective surgeries and patients come in with normal lungs and are going to be extubated in a short period of time. In, in my patients, if they don't have ARDS, they have pneumonia and are at risk for ARDS. They have COPD and big bullae and are at risk for uh, developing pneumothoraces, uh, or they have interstitial lung disease and their lungs are functionally smaller anyway. So it makes sense, at least in the medical ICU population, uh, to use a low tidal volume in everyone. That way I don't miss anybody who uh, has uh, ARDS and get 24 or 48 hours behind. And the few people who needed to be innovated for airway protection are not going to be harmed by it. I can always turn up the tidal volume when I get the initial blood gases back. So the bottom line is, if you take nothing else from this lecture about what the standard therapy should be, it's that size matters. And the only question is how we spare the lung injury. But the concern about ventilator-induced lung injury and, and not over-inflating the lungs and not creating further ventilator-induced lung injury um, is real, and I think that's probably a practice across the board. The second evidence-based treatment that I'll mention is a conservative fluid strategy. And this is a study that we did on the ARDS network. The FACT study it was a factorial design study where patients were randomized to either having their hemodynamics managed with a PA catheter and following the wedge pressure, cardiac output versus CVP. And that was factorialized with a randomization between a fluid conservative strategy and a fluid liberal strategy. To make a long story short, there was no difference in outcome uh, based on what kind of catheter we used and whether we followed wedge or whether we followed CVP. But there was a huge difference based on whether we restricted fluids and actively diuresed the patients versus allowing a fluid liberal strategy. And what do we mean by conservative strategies? Well, provided the hemodynamics were adequate, which meant a mean, uh, mean arterial pressure above 60, and the patients were already out of shock, and that their uh, renal function was adequate. We actively diuresed them to a target CVP uh, less than four, which meant we were flogging these patients pretty hard with furosemide around the clock, even though they didn't uh, look like they needed it. What was the fluid balance in a week, um, in seven days, uh, in all comers? 
who are being uh, treated on the fluid, uh, say, fluid liberal arm. Their CVPs started out about 11 and a half to 12 and uh, pretty much stayed there, maybe dropped one millimeter of mercury over seven days. And what was their cumulative <coughs> fluid balance? Who thinks it was even? Okay, we have one for even. Who thinks it was negative? Okay, we have one for negative, maybe two for negative. And who thinks it was positive? And we're talking about the CVP remaining even over seven days, maybe even dropping a millimeter of mercury. In fact, the fluid balance over those seven days was seven liters in all comers. They gained a liter of fluid a day. Uh, CVP uh, stayed pretty much even, maybe even dropped a little bit, but the truth is they third space. They third space into their ankles, they third space into their hands, and they third space into their lungs uh, as well. So even though it looked like the CVP was remaining even, they were gaining a liter of fluid a day. What about the fluid conservative arm where we flog them until we either hit a CVP less than four or we got them extubated or they dropped their pressure and had a contraindication to continue furosemide? What was their fluid balance in a week? Who thinks it was negative? One negative, who thinks it was positive? And who thinks it was about even? Yeah, it was about plus or minus 150 cc's. So the truth is, that, and we dropped the CVP on average of about three to four millimeters of mercury in that group. You know, over seven days, we had reduced it from 11 and a half to about eight and a half. So, um, so the truth is that if you give furosemide around the clock and you drive the CVP down and you actively dry out the lungs, you'll be lucky in these patients if over a week you're keeping them, you're keeping them even. So what was the outcome of doing this? There was no significant difference in mortality, but I'll get to that in a second. However, the composite endpoint of being alive and off the ventilator between days one and 28 were about two and a half days more in the fluid conservative art, uh, strategy versus the fluid liberal strategy, and 2.3 day, 2.2 days more out of the alive and out of the ICU. Now, what about the fact that we have to give all this fluid to protect the kidneys? Well, actually, uh, more patients needed dialysis in the fluid liberal arm than the fluid conservative arm. So if you flood the kidneys uh, and make them edematous, they don't work any better, and you just have to dialyze off all that fluid you gave. To make the point further, so it wasn't um, statistically significant, but the trend was in the right direction. The fluid conservative arm had a mortality rate at 60 days of 25.5% versus 28.4% in the liberal strategy. That's a relative 10% difference. Uh, if you look at Gordon Rubenfeld's data, he estimates about 190,000 uh, cases of ARDS annually in the United States. If you lose that, use that mortality rate, that's over 54,000 expected deaths. 10% of that would be 5,400 deaths that might be attributable to excess fluid balance. How many drowning victims are there in the United States every year from swimming pools, bathtubs, beaches, whatever, a little over 3,400? So the bottom line is that more patients drown in ICUs than all other locations combined in the country. Uh, we're flooding our patients, so if there's a second treatment 
then I would recommend in all comers with ARDS, it's dry them out, dry lungs or happy lungs. Beyond that, we're going a little bit uh, off the tracks. There's nothing that I could say uh, has statistically significant data in prospective randomized multicenter trials. In all comers with ARDS, we're looking at maybe some subsets of patients with severe ARDS and the need for salvage therapy. So first of all, prone positioning. Where did this come about? Well, we talk about diffuse infiltrates in ARDS, but are they really diffuse? There seems to be a predilection for the bases of the lungs uh, and the dorsum of the lungs. And if you look at the lungs as pyramids sitting within cylinders, a lot of the volume, most of the volume of a pyramid is at the base. So you have a huge amount of volume of the lung that sits right behind the heart and right above the uh, diaphragm and is prone to atelectasis. If you prone the patient, you take the weight of the heart and the lungs. The easiest way to think about it is that you take the weight of the heart and the abdominal contents off the dorsum of the lungs that's compressing them uh, and allowing these atelectatic uh, areas of the lung, which is a huge, represent a huge volume of the lung to recruit and expand. You get a more homogeneous distribution of pleural pressure. If you look, the lungs are very oval here. When you take the weight of the heart uh, and diaphragm off of them, you allow more even expansion and, and the lungs are a lot more rounded uh, in the prone position. So you get a more homogeneous distribution of pleural pressure so that the pleural pressure uh, in the bases and the dorsum is no longer above the closing pressure of the airways in the alveoli. Uh, and therefore, you're reducing basal or atelectasis. And you improve VQ matching because you also get a more homogeneous distribution of your gas tissue ratio. Now, where did this idea come about? I don't know, but I think that this is the Boston market or Kenny Rogers uh, approach to ventilation. And right now, with all the ARDS cases we have from severe influenza in our unit, we actually look like we, we are a rotisserie chicken place uh, in the MICU this week. What about the outcomes? So does it work? So there have been numerous studies, various lengths of time for how long you prone. In the earlier Gantt-Noni study, I think these people were only prone about eight hours out of the day and only up to 10 days. Uh, later studies prone the patients longer. And if you look at all comers who meet the AECC definition of acute lung injury and ARDS, so PF ratio is less than 300 or by the Berlin criteria, mild, moderate, and severe ARDS, so all comers. So PF ratio is less than 300. It actually, the point estimate actually slightly favors them being supine. There's really not any um, difference at all in all the trials. But if you take the trials and only enroll the moderate to severe ARDS, the PF ratio is less than 200, uh, and put them all together, you start getting a trend that actually favors the patients being prone. In May, uh, Garen uh, published a multi-center trial uh, from Europe that enrolled 466 uh, patients, moderate to severe ARDS, uh, with PF ratios less than 150. Uh, and they were prone positioned for 16 hours, uh, uh, consecutive hours out of the day, up to day 28. So this was a hearty proning effort. Um, and he found that the 28-day mortality was essentially cut in half. Huge treatment effect. 
I mean, that's not just a treatment effect. That allows you to start your own religion, uh, to get patients that sick and salvage them. Uh, and the 90-day mortality almost uh, uh, as significant. And interestingly enough, there, were no, there was no difference in complications. Now, almost every proning study uh, up until this point showed more complications of dislodged uh, catheters and dislodged endotracheal tubes in the proning arm. So I think it was um, um, very notable and remarkable that they had no increase in complications. And to me, what that tells me is that these aren't amateurs. These are people who prone uh, on a regular basis. They have the drill down. The nurses know what they're doing. Uh, respiratory therapists know what they're doing. Um, and there's a team approach to, to actually doing this. But I would say since this study has come up, our interest in proning patients, uh, at least the, the sicker half of the ARDS patients, uh, has increased significantly. What about neuromuscular blockades? So we tend to think that spontaneous breathing is better. We actually would like not to have to sedate our patients. We'd like them up and around and walking around. But that potentially comes at a cost, and the cost is with ventilator dyssynchrony. One, if the patients can actively exhale, they defeat the PEEP. Uh, and even though the end expiratory pressure may be positive, the end expiratory lung volume uh, is not and they're prone to atelectasis and atelectrauma. So you're inflating these surfactant-depleted alveoli, inflating and deflating them over and over again. There are shear forces on the wall of the alveolus as they inflate from uh, atelectasis to fully inflated as they rub against the uh, alveoli that are already inflated, and they're prone to the atelectrauma, uh, as we discussed when I, when I showed you the Webb and Tierney data and discuss the uh, Dreyfus data that there may have been a protective effect uh, of PEEP. Also, if the patient is inhaling at the time the ventilator is assisting, they can be prone to over-distension with barotrauma and volutrauma. So the dyssynchrony that the patients get could be bad for them. So even though we're, we're, uh, we believe that spontaneous breathing is good, it may come at too high a price. And there may be some efficacy to uh, using neuromuscular blockade, at least for a short period of time. And uh, this was done by Papazian's group and published in New England Journal uh, four years ago. Uh, these were 340 patients. These were also moderate to severe ARDS, so patients with PF ratios less than 150. I don't think I would paralyze patients who had more mild disease anyway. Uh, and they used a cisatraturium infusion uh, for 48 hours. Uh, in looking at the primary endpoints, um, there were trends in the unadjusted data for reduced mortality in the cisatracurium group, both at 90 days and 28 days. If you look at actuarial survival, so you look at the reduction in the hazard ratio, if you statistically adjust uh, for important confounders like uh, PF ratio, plateau pressure, uh, and severity of illness, get a marginally significant improvement in the hazard ratio of, of death. So this is a little bit more controversial. One, it required uh, some um, statistical readjustment to show significance, and also it does fly a bit in the face of what we know about spontaneous breathing and early awakening and getting people up and walking around. Uh, you can't get them up and walking around 
if you have them on the cisatricurium drip, but you can drag them across the floor. I don't think that does the same thing. So we don't like to do that. I will say that uh, when I've had people who have refractory dyssynchrony on the ventilator and it's early in the disease, since the publication of this article, um, I have uh, under duress um, resorted to uh, a neuromuscular blockade a, a little earlier than I did uh, before. Uh, but only in the more severe patients and only in the ones uh, who, uh, to me, have obvious dyssynchrony with a ventilator. What about inhaled vasodilators? Uh, what, what's the, um, and I use the term inhaled vasodilators, you can get the same vasodilatory effect with a cheaper inhaled drug like epoprostenol you can with inhaled nitrogen oxide, but why inhaled? Well, if you use a, an IV vasodilator, say nitroprusside, you will vasodilate in the better ventilated alveoli, but you will also vasodilate in the uh, unventilated alveoli and you will increase your shunt fraction. On the other hand, if you inhale a vasodilator, the inhaled vasodilator will go to the ventilated lung units and selectively vasodilate the uh, better ventilated lung units and steal the blood away from the unventilated lung units, thereby reducing your shunt fraction. Uh, and in fact, you can cosmetically improve pulmonary artery pressures and PF ratios uh, and shunt fractions uh, while somebody's getting an inhaled vasodilator. You turn it off and they go right back to baseline uh, because it doesn't change the natural history of the disease. And actually, if you do a meta-analysis of all the trials that used inhaled uh, nitric oxide, the point estimate actually favors uh, control, not nitric oxide. It's certainly not significant. There's certainly nothing that clearly changes, uh, there's no data that it clearly changes outcome in ARDS. So why? Yeah, it may help you make the numbers look good for a brief period of time. Nitric oxide is also uh, an oxidant, so theoretically you could be getting a lung injury down the road uh, as a result, but I think it's mainly that we're uh, making cosmetic improvements by inhaling vasodilators rather than doing anything that's going to affect the, the natural history of the disease. Extracorporeal life support, and I use the term extracorporeal life support rather than extracorporeal membrane oxygenation because the goals were not always oxygenation in these studies. Uh, one goes back 30 years to the Zapal study uh, in JAMA. This was before the understanding of ventilators, there was a great understanding of ventilator-induced lung injuries, so the goal was not lung rest, the goal was oxygenation augmentation. These were very sick patients, the mortality was 90%, so in this very small trial of using uh, ECMO uh, along with uh, conventional ventilator management, um, there was no significant reduction in uh, mortality. Mortality was sky high in this disease, so you were taking uh, essentially unsalvageable patients um, and not doing much with them by, by augmenting gas exchange with ECMO. Of course, this was very cumbersome. This was essentially ancient technology. I don't think you would fit circuits from 30 years ago in a modern ICU room these days. Technology improved over the years and understanding of trying to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury improved over the years. And in the mid-80s, I think it was Gatnoni who was reporting better than predicted survival compared to historical controls. When he used a lung rest strategy, 
of apneic oxygenation, inflating the lungs maybe four times a minute, but he used the ECMO circuit for uh, CO2 removal only, ECOR. And then his mortality was down below 50% or somewhere around there, much better than what Zapal had shown. Alan Morris uh, and his group uh, did a randomized control trial that was published in the Blue Journal of the ATS uh, in 1994. And sure enough, mortality was better than in Zapal's time, uh, but there was no significant difference between those who got ventilator uh, management only versus apneic oxygenation and ECOR. So basically our ventilator techniques uh, had improved in mortality and our care of these patients had improved over the ensuing decades um, and mortality in both arms was, was improved compared to historical controls. The technology of, of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation improved further over the next decade or so. Just recently, uh, Peek and colleagues reported the CSER trial in Lancet. Patients were randomized to usual care or ECMO. Uh, and now we start seeing something that's very intriguing. The mortality is down below 50%, but uh, it, there's a real trend in reducing it further with ECMO mortality down to 37% and a p-value of 0.07, and that got a lot of attention. If one looks at death alone or severe disability alone, it's not quite significant, but if one looks at the composite endpoint of death or severe disability at six months, it becomes statistically significant. But there's an asterisk, and uh, in baseball, if your statistics have an asterisk, that's usually bad news. So what does the asterisk mean? Patients were randomly allocated to consideration for treatment by ECMO, but did not necessarily receive this treatment. What do they mean by that? Well, they had 90 patients in each arm, and the analysis they did was the intent to treat. So if you were randomized to ECMO, you, your data were analyzed as if you were on the ECMO arm. That doesn't necessarily mean you actually received ECMO, um, this was not a per-protocol analysis. So 90 patients were assigned for consideration to ECMO. 22, which is a quarter of that population, did not even receive ECMO. Some of them died before transfer or during transfer. One had a contraindication to heparin, but a whole bunch of them improved with conventional management. You know, these were pretty sick ARDS patients, and they improved with conventional management, never went on the ECMO circuit. Also, there are just a few confounders here. If you were randomized to the ECMO treatment, you were transported to an ECMO center in the UK. However, if you were not randomized to uh, ECMO, you were treated at another center. So there's, a, you know, that was not equipped to do ECMO. So there's uh, a little bit of a difference here in, in uh, the uh, capabilities of the, of the uh, centers that treated these patients. Also, if you were randomized to the ECMO arm, you had significantly greater odds of being treated with a low tidal volume, low pressure strategy, which has hard data behind it at reducing mortality uh, in this disease. Um, so I think these are hopelessly uh, confounded data, and all we can say is that if 
you were transported to a high volume center with ECMO capability, regardless of whether or not you receive ECMO, your outcome is going, and you're treated with low tidal volume, which we know works, your outcome is likely to be better. What about our data? So in the ARDS network, we had a registry of 600 patients with severe H1N1 uh, during the pandemic. And we looked at the criteria. Some of the centers did ECMO, some of the centers didn't do ECMO. Uh, we looked at the criteria by which patients would qualify for ECMO. And if you look at the patients who got ECMO versus didn't get ECMO, uh, most of them did not. So only a minority of the, the uh, pandemic uh, H1N1 was ECMO eligible. If you look at the 60-day survival between those who were ECMO eligible uh, but didn't get ECMO and those who actually did get ECMO, there was no difference. So my question is, ECMO is a promising therapy. I'm not sure ARDS is the right disease for it. However, I think that still remains to be seen. It needs a less confounded trial, uh, which Dan Herr is doing right now. The EOLIA trial, we are currently enrolling patients. You know, maybe it's better at preventing respiratory failure. You can do extracorporeal CO2 removal without the big pumps and um, you know, without a big circuit, you might even be able to get by with doing it uh, on a dialysis machine. Whether or not, whether or not that changes outcome, uh, that you know, needs to be shown. Or is it a bridge to transplant as we see in Bart Griffith's patient who's being walked around? This is actually a guy with COPD, not, not ARDS. Uh, but he was intubated in the MICU. And if he was uh, intubated in bed, he was likely to have his physical condition further deteriorate before he could go to transplant. Uh, on the ECMO circuit, he was able to be extubated and start getting physical therapy. Before his transplant, he got transplanted, and I believe he was discharged in a week. Um, again, I think that needs uh, prospective data to confirm that that's the role for ECMO, but, but it seems promising. So I'm not convinced that ARDS is the right disease for ECMO, but I do believe that the technology is getting better and we need more prospective data. Um, and I would encourage these patients to be enrolled in an RCT, which coincidentally we're doing. Um, I am not an APRV aficionado. I think most of you have more experience with this than I do. And I would defer to uh, Dr. Habashi for a better physiologic discussion. I just want to go over the clinical outcome data with it. This is, to me, kind of a hybrid between CPAP and inverse ratio ventilation, where patients are uh, allowed to spontaneously breathe at a higher, um, a higher recruitment pressure. And if that's all we did for them is put them on a high CPAP, we'd be able to recruit the lungs and improve oxygenation, but CO2 removal would suffer. So every so often, we could release the pressure in that circuit and ventilate off some CO2 and then rapidly re-recruit the lungs so that oxygenation doesn't suffer uh, and thereby get, gain something in CO2 removal as well. But this major advantages uh, purported with this are breathing comfort, lighter sedation, uh, which could decrease the time of mechanical ventilation. That's always a good thing. And that spontaneous breathing could decrease dependent atelectasis, uh, recruit some of those atelectatic alveoli in the bases, 
uh, improve gas exchange, reduce ventilator-induced lung injury, and actually and preserve the hemodynamics because with spontaneous breathing, you'll actually have more venous return and a better cardiac output. Now, to me, I think there are a few things to keep in mind when one is using inverse ratio ventilation. One is that cosmetic uh, improvements in the peak airway pressure don't necessarily translate into improvements in the peak alveolar pressure. So uh, one could turn somebody from controlled volume ventilation to controlled pressure ventilation. The peak airway pressure, of course, would be down around where the, where the plateau pressure is, but given the same tidal volume and the same compliance of the lungs, the plateau pressure, i.e. peak alveolar pressure and peak distension of the alveoli will be exactly the same. Also, although the P2 will be low, maybe even set to zero, uh, with a short expiratory time, uh, the end expiratory alveolar pressure could be significantly higher, will be significantly higher, uh, than what the end expiratory airway pressure is. This is the phenomenon commonly referred to uh, as auto-peep. I think that's fine. I think one has to be cognizant uh, one of what these pressures are and these volumes are, there is a significant amount of auto-peep going on to, to oxygenate these patients. You're not getting something for nothing. Uh, and also, although we look at these spontaneous volumes, which could be, you know, 150 cc's or somewhere around there, or 200 cc's, certainly a lung protective uh, amount of volume, if the patient is inhaling at the time that the, the ventilator um, re-recruits, their release pressures can be inordinately high as the ventilator cycles between uh, T high uh, and T low. So my only caution about that is just be aware of auto-peep and be aware of these release pressures because um, I'm not sure that release pressures of 600 or 700 uh, mLs uh, are any safer than tidal volumes of 600 or 700 mLs. Uh, and one just has to be cautious of other sources of uh, ventilator-induced lung injury. So what are the clinical data? There's a few studies. Uh, this by Christian Putinson um, actually showed that cardiac output um, was improved, uh, oxygen delivery was improved, there was improved shunt and improved compliance and reduce sedation requirements and reduce vasopressors and inotropes with uh, airway pressure release ventilation. Uh, but this was compared to a group that was paralyzed for 72 hours. And I would maintain that we don't like to have all of our patients paralyzed for 72 hours. So I'm not sure that how that correlates to typical medical management, where even if somebody is on assist control or PRVC or any of the modes we commonly use, uh, in the MICU, there's still a fair amount of spontaneous breathing going on uh, by the patient uh, anyway. This was a study from Finland. It was a single-closed university ICU. It was a small study, only 58 patients. And in Europe, they use APRV differently than we do. This is uh, much different than the John Downs and Nader Habashi approach to, to APRV. They use longer expiratory times and they use higher uh, P lows. And they're trying to hit the sweet spot in between the lower inflection point and upper inflection point. So it's a different technique. Um, I'm not sure how that translates to what we do. The, re the tidal volumes uh, or release volumes in this study 
were 8 to 10 mLs per kilo, so they were not really lung protective uh, tidal volumes, and they saw no difference in mortality. And the mortality tended to be very low anyway, 17% in APRV versus 18% in SIMV, which to me suggests that these patients weren't very sick. So I don't know how this you know, translates to what we do uh, with APRV in this country. There was a study from university, uh, from a trauma center at uh, University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, but still this was a heterogeneous group of patients. These were only 63 patients, so again, a rather small study. Only half of them actually had PF ratios less than 300 and met the definition of ALI or ARDS. Uh, and if you look at the trends, the ventilator days were actually longer and ICU length of stay actually longer in the APRV group than conventional uh, low tidal volume uh, management and mortality was not completely different. Again, they used the APRV more along the lines of how we use APRV, but it had all these confounders with it and I'm not exactly sure what to make of these data. They're certainly not positive. And beyond that, there's not a lot of other prospective randomized clinical data with APRV. Now, Nader has some very promising data um, in swine models. I think that his data are a little bit more analogous not to a salvage treatment but to a preventative treatment. And again, we wait to see clinical data uh, in uh, patients. Um, now here, this up until last February, up until this past February, about a year ago at this point, was my favorite toy until it was taken away from me, and that was the oscillator. And why did I like the oscillator? Because I got to be the master of the oscillator in adults, uh, and nobody really understood it. So I had, a, I had my machine. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, so what is the oscillator, and why would we want to use it? Uh, not anymore. Ventilation at tidal volumes that are lower than the dead space. You depart from bulk flow principles of gas transport. Frequency compensates for the small tidal volume, and it's essentially thought of as a protective strategy. Uh, if you were to go home and blast your stereo to Springsteen and put a, uh, your hand in front of the speaker, you would feel the air going back and forth. Well, you could put a gasket on it and a funnel and bias flow of gas and some valves to regulate the pressure, and essentially you'd be moving gas back and forth, these pressure waves being transmitted to the endotracheal tube. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of ex more experience with this in kitties uh, before we started doing this in adults, but the uh, neonatal data is confounded by very heterogeneous groups of studies, different eligibility criteria, different enrollment windows. The earlier studies, surfactant was not in the market. The later sur studies, surfactant was on the market and in common use in this disease. And mortality in all these studies uh, was never shown to be different, but in some of these uh, studies, mortality was zero. So you're not going to, you know, you're not going to improve upon a mortality of zero anyway. What about in adults? Well, the the pivotal trial that licensed the the oscillator was the MOAT trial. Uh, these were pretty sick patients. They had peak airway pressures of uh, close to 40 peeps of 13 and FiO2s over 70%, PF ratios almost uh, at 100, uh, and it showed a reduction in mortality from 52% in the conventional arm to 37% in the high-frequency 
uh, oscillator arm. But this was not statistically significant. It was a small study. They only had to show equivalence. It was only power to show equivalence. There were 73 patients in one arm and 75 in the other, uh, as opposed to the 800, over 800 patients we had uh, in the first Ardsnet study. And also the tidal volume in the conventional arm, this was run concurrently as we were doing our low tidal volume study, so the results were not known. So the uh, control arm had tidal volumes of 8 mLs per kilo of predicted body weight, which is lower than traditional, but not, you know, as, as low and lung protective as it could have been. Certainly it's above 6 mLs per kilo. And then there were two prospective RCTs uh, that just got published in February, the OSCAR trial in the UK, and the Oscillate, trouble, uh, the Oscillate uh, trial, well, trouble is right, uh, the, the Oscillate trial in Canada. First, the UK, the, UK study, the UK study used a different device than we're familiar with. Uh, in, in North America, we were more familiar with the Sensor Medics 3100B, they used the Metran Novolung R100. I'm not really familiar with this device. I think the controls and how you set it up are a little bit different. And their enrollment window was also a little bit different. They showed no difference between the group. They were both 40, uh, uh, mortality was about 41% uh, in both arms of the study. But in the Canadian trial, I have to say, I have to admit that they did use the oscillator the way I use the oscillator pretty much. It's the same machine I used. Uh, the groups were pretty well balanced, and uh, mortality was uh, the same 40% in the HFOV arm, but only 29% uh, in the control arm. And so the enrollment was stopped early uh, for safety because uh, of the excess mortality shown by HFOV. I don't know whether it was excess mortality shown by HFOV or improved mortality in the control. Maybe I want to be a control patient in Canada, um, and they ought to market, market the placebo. Clearly there was no efficacy to the oscillator um, in both of these trials. And so this was me um, around last February, and I was asked, so what, what, what will become of the oscillator? And I kind of had an idea. This is uh, from eBay. And you actually can find, this is a Sensormedics 3100 neonatal ventilator, but you can actually buy one of these on eBay if you have an extra $39.95 to, to, to bid. But the bottom line is, you know, we talk about rescue therapy or salvage therapy, and, and, and the thought is uh, that like a life preserver, you know how it's going to work, and it's definitely going to salvage the patient. We have data for low tidal volume, and and a fluid conservative strategy that I think are very robust, robust and are applicable to all patients, whether they have severe ARDS or not. In the severe patients, uh, I think we have mature data that follows along with uh, previous meta-analysis of proning the patients. I'm not sure I would do it in everyone uh, because I think in the patients without severe ARDS, you're just more likely to dislodge things than you are to help the patients. But certainly in the sicker patients with PF ratios less than 150, the Guerin study suggests that, that we can actually improve outcomes. So I'm a lot faster at proning these patients nowadays. Whether or not to use neuromuscular blockade for the first 48 hours 
in the severe uh, ARDS population of PF ratios less than 150. I think it's a toss-up. Some believe it, but again, there was a lot of post-hoc statistical analysis that had to be done to adjust for the confounders. How is that translated into my practice? Uh, I do it only when I have to, when I can't do anything about the ventilator dyssynchrony and only in the sickest patients, and probably less than 48 hours. That's a judgment call on my part. But other than that, the other techniques that folks use are promising. There are no prospective randomized multicenter uh, data validated as evidence, and I think that that's where the misnomer of salvage therapy comes in. So we do it uh, when, when, we, when we try it and put somebody on ECMO and patients get better. We think it's the ECMO, but I would say that it needs confirmatory uh, prospective data. Thanks. Hopefully uh, nobody's thrown anything at me for saying that. Um, so, I've got, so I've gotten away with it, but thanks, and I'll, I'll take any questions.